I needed to be ruthless in my in my leadership. You were making money in prison. Yes, I used to make five hundred thousand rand a month, give or take. Doing what? Solicitation. Inside of prison. Inside prison. And we're live. What's up, everyone? Today on the Wide Awake podcast, I have an absolutely incredible guest and someone that I've wanted to meet for quite a while. His name is Welcome Vitboy. He is a reformed gangster, actor, writer, inspirational speaker, and the director of the Bright Spark Foundation essay. <laughs> Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. I'm also delighted to be here. Yeah, man, it's it's awesome. Uh, we were supposed to do this a little while ago. Unfortunately, yeah. it fell through. But um, I'm glad that we we got things running. So I just wanted to ask you to start off with, um, where does the name Welcome Vitboy come from? Wow, that's a, that's an interesting story though, because I think um, when I tell it, it's normally what happens. Um, when I was born, my uh, grandmother was standing outside uh, the room, and my mother and my father were inside talking, and they were deciding on a name. But then the doctor was coming. Um, you know, um, down the corridor, and um, as he approached the room, my grandmother heard my grand my my grandmother heard my mother and my father talking, and then my father said that they will welcome him into the family. So my grandmother misunderstood, thinking that welcome is what he said. My name is going to be. <laughs> so when the doctor asked, "Have they decided on a name yet?" My grandmother says, "I heard them say welcome, so that's his name." So he left. And registered me as welcome, you know. So that's where the. But it wasn't. It's a beautiful name, though. I love it. You know. It, it just I think stuck. it's very awesome. I think it's really cool. And um, where are you originally from? So I was born and bred on the Cape Flats. Uh, Vahala Park um, is my home. Um, that's where I was born. And what was it um, like growing up there? I think Vahala Park for me was like a. It was a very beautiful place at at some point. You know, um, dusty streets. Um, you know, a lot of play, a lot of uh, innocence, just running up and down. Um, but I think the minute you start getting to a point where you see what's really going on in your community, and as a child, you suddenly see the the, the shells fall off your eyes, and you kind of realize that my community is actually very much gang infested, it's drug infested, and and you have to make a choice as a child, like which way are you going to go, you know, and um, I loved education, I was a straight A student, so I used to go to school outside of my community, and I used to come back and be laughed at and ridiculed because they didn't think education was an important thing where I come from, so that was like the, the kind of environment that I grew up in. Unfortunately, I think, because I've done quite a lot of work in the Cape Flats, and um, most of the time when I'm there, it's like at during, it's during the daytime, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I see a lot of kids around and the kids should really be at school, but exactly. they're not, you know, um, and I think it's a lack of support structure um, from parental or like a, a guardian. Mm -hmm. um, what was your support structure like? What were your what was your relationship like with your parents? I think um, before I talk about that, I want to go back to the education thing. Okay. You know, what what we learned on the streets when I was still very much part of the streets is that the education we used to get, um, especially being in that gang environment, was that they believed that education was a tool um, to, to subdue us and to bond us, you know, and to, in a way, it was the, it was the, the brainwashing that took place in saying that if you choose education over loyalty and over feeding your family and running the streets and protecting the corners, then you failed as a man within a, a colored community, 
you know, um, and they saw education as a, as a, as a weapon um, and not as, as a tool of liberation. So it was very difficult to unlearn that. Um, so I, I, I hear you when you say sometimes that lack of support, but I think it's also the way in which we were, we were brainwashed to believe and think that education is actually that. Um, and in what way is it used as a weapon? I think that the more you, the, the more I started distancing myself from education because of being told that education is, is not good for me, the more I started to understand the importance of hustling, being on the streets, selling, you know, uh, exchanging, you know, um, and, and that gave me relevance, you know, that gave me uh, some kind of uh, understanding and, and people in my community started to respect me. You know, and that was the weirdest thing about my communities. Like I was standing on the street corners, I was doing my thing. And, and that's, where, that's where I started to be respected. But going to school, wearing my blazer, I was ridiculed and laughed at. So I could see the difference between um, how education was not serving me at that moment because everybody believed that education was a weapon. You know, um, until you grow up and you, you start shedding the skin of naivety and then you start understanding that it was actually the wasn't actually the, the truth. It was actually the lie that you've been sold as a child because they wanted you to be part of the gangs. And that's how my life started. And obviously as a kid, you're very impressionable. So when people older than you are telling you something, you start to believe it. Of course, of course. And I think, and I think for me, that was the thing, even with, like, as you asked about my, about the, the, the support my parents had, it was like my, my father was a very hardworking man. You know, he believed that he needed to work in order to support his family. Um, but what he never did is that he never really spent time with me. Um, when I went to school, you know, he was already at work. Um, when I came back from school, he was still at work. Um, when he came back from work, I was sleeping. So it was that kind of thing. Like I had a dad, but he was also not there, you know? So he was, he was, he was, he was present, but unavailable. Um, and if, if he was available, he was not present, you know? So that was the kind of, you know, the, 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 the support that I had from my father was that we never really had that bond. Hence, today, I still don't play soccer or watch rugby because I never understood what it meant and how and how do you actually, what is this idea behind grown men kicking around a ball, you know? So that's, that was my understanding of it. And do you have any siblings? No, I, I don't have any brothers. I don't have any sisters. I'm the only child. Um, I want to get into when you started like when you first joined the gang, I mean, how old were you, were you when you joined the gang? Um, I remember I was 12 years old, you know, um, when I joined the gangs, um, closely to becoming 12, because I think that for me, it was a buildup to what I was starting to see in my community um, and also being given the invitation. Um, and I think that the thing that, that, that when we talk about the invitation is like the, the fact that you were recruited, you know, there's always recruitment drives taking place for you to become part of the gang. And, and what I found quite interesting was the fact that the guy that, that recruited me knew about my family circumstances. He knew that my dad was absent. He knew that I didn't really have a good relationship with him. And, and I was quite impressionable, as you said. Um, so he knew what to say, how to say it, and hook me. And who was the man that recruited you? Um, it was Colin Stanfield. One of the, he was, he was called the, the mayor of Valhalla Park. And um, I mean, he was, he, was, he was an awesome guy, like personally from, from, from my experience of getting to know him. I mean, he was the kind of guy that would, um, you know, support families. 
Um, he would he would pay your child's school fees. He would really go out of his way to make sure that the community had what it had and what it needed. Um, so, do you think that now, or do you did you think that back in the day? I think back in the day, I, I thought of it because someone that's recruiting young kids into gangs can't be a great guy, you know. I think I, the reason why I'm saying he's he, he's a great guy was I I kind of like understood later on why he did what he did, you know. Um, because sometimes when we when we tend to judge people. Um, we tend to judge him from where we are sitting and not knowing what he even went through as an individual. I believe that everybody is good. No person is ever born evil, bad. Nobody's ever born a murderer or anything like that. A child doesn't come out of his mother's womb with a gun or a knife. Circumstances and choices later on play a very important role in a child's life that shaped them to make certain decisions. So when I met Colin, it was that kind of relationship. I wanted to understand where he was coming from. He understood where I was coming from. And yes, my vulnerability gave him an opportunity to plant whatever seeds he planted in me to follow him and believe that he was a great man. It was only after I started to understand and my journey goes on until I got to prison where I got to understand certain things about myself that made me understand that maybe listening to him was not a good idea. What I wanted to know was, um, while I was doing a bit of research on you, I saw that, uh, he saw potential in you. Mm -hmm. And do you think he saw potential in you because of your education? Because you were a smart kid. Also, um, people wouldn't necessarily think that you would be someone that would be with a gang, you know? Exactly. And I think, and, and I think for me, that was the, the most painful part of realizing, you know, when, when I went to prison, the, the most painful part was realizing that I was always being used, you know, even though he said he saw potential in me. I knew that I had potential, but I wasn't aware of the kind of potential um, that I had. And um, I also realized at the end of the day, what happened is I used to be, I used to be asked to go places. I used to be asked to drop things off. He used to say to me, listen, come to my place. Don't take off your school uniform, bring your bag, just take out the books, you know? And he used to say to me, go and deliver this package there, go and deliver that package there. So and that was your role, the delivery That was boy. my role as a runner, you know? And, and, I, and I thought that, okay, cool, this guy sees potential in me because he's sending me to do all of these awesome drop-offs and I'm meeting other gang leaders and I'm, I'm loved and people in my community are starting to trust me, um, only to discover that the police do not search a boy wearing a uniform. So all I can imagine is like this beautiful, innocent 12-year-old boy in a school uniform, so happy to be accepted and uh, be a part of a community. And, you know, have people that he looks up to. Mm -hmm. And I just imagine you like running from place to place with like a bag full of whatever, drugs, money, whatever it was. And it's so sad. It's really, it's so upsetting, you know? I mean, what, what do you, what comes to your mind when you think about those days? Knowing now what you know, like. Yeah, like I said, for me, it was number one, a sense of disappointment, mm -hmm. a sense of feeling used, um, a sense of knowing that, Maybe what he said in relation to seeing potential in me was not the truth. Um, and, and I was just a means to an end. You know, I was just there to serve his purpose, you know. Um, but like I said, I needed to go through that process to understand myself later on. So it also gifted me a lot in, a, in, in, in return, you know, to, to realize that, I mean, as a child running up and down, as you're saying, being so happy. And I really was. 
uh, truthfully. I never checked what was in the parcels. I never checked what was in the bags. I, I trusted that whatever he gave me was important. And it was necessary and important for that individual it was going to. So I was serving a greater purpose. And I mean, these guys, I used to go and I dropped a, pa a package and they would, they, would, they would reward me. Some of them would give me money. Others would say to me, what do you want? They would give me a cool drink. They will, you know, they treated me like, wow, it's like, you know, you did something awesome. Like you're special. And you're special. And I felt I was special because I was given all of this, you know, uh, acknowledgement. Yeah, exactly. Well. And do you know what you were transporting now? Um, I remember when I was asked to take a, a bag home, very heavy bag that I needed to take home. And as I was taking this bag home, there was this, you know, this inquisitiveness in me to, to actually find out this curiosity is like, what is in this bag? Because it's heavy. And it's the first time that he has given me a bag to take home. And he said to me, when you get home, just put it under your bed, you know, um, and don't take it out until I tell you to. So when I got home, my grandmother didn't even ask. You know, um, I went up to the room, I put the, the bag underneath the bed. And as I was laying there, I was constantly thinking, like, what is in the bag? What is in the bag? What is in the bag? And um, it, it has been two years since I, I joined the gang. So I opened the bag and I looked inside and I saw all of these guns, you know, and, and I took one of them out and I was like still standing in front of the mirror and I was like modeling because I've seen guns in movies, you know, and, and, and the minute I touched that gun, I felt so strong, I felt so powerful, and I was playing with it. Um, and that, at that moment, I, I didn't actually realize the impact of what I was doing or why I was doing it, but it made me feel good because, again, I felt like if he can trust me with this, he'll, he's probably trusting me with bigger things. So for me, I felt like something greater is coming. My mind was telling me that, look, you know, from it was packages, little ones, now it's big packages, now it's guns, you know? So I felt like, wow, I'm really getting there, you know? You felt like you were moving up in the ranks. I felt like I was moving up in the ranks. And getting to that, when did you start moving up in the ranks? And like, what were the different stages? So you went from kind of like a runner to mm -hmm. what? So from a runner, I started um, doing like, go with the guys, you know, like go with the boys. That was the thing, go with the boys, go and break in, you know, um, jump over fences, steal stuff. You know, you're always being sent to do something, you know. And for me, it felt good because now we are being told it's no longer just about me being in my own community anymore. It's about me going with men outside of the community to go and do certain things. And we used to go to these Lani areas, you know, like, like the Cliftons and the, and the, and the, and the Mowbrays and, and those places. Break -ins. And we used to break in, we used to jump over the fence, we used to take certain things. And we were very specifically told what to get. Like if they wanted a car, what kind of car, you know, if they wanted... Um, something in the house, they would give us a detailed description of what they wanted. So it felt good because now the responsibility was growing, you know, um, and I remember my, 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 uh, the device that they gave me, not a device, the, they gave me a knife, it was a sable, you know, they gave me a sable, it was a completely stainless steel knife that they gave me, they said, this is yours, you know, um, and it felt good because now I got something. Um, not knowing that as my time in this gang would progress at the end, at the age of 16, I would now be introduced to a firearm of my own. And that would be my next level. What were your goals at that time? Say like when you were doing the break-ins, was your goal to be as higher ranked as possible? You just wanted to keep climbing the ranks? I think for me, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily climbing any rank. You know, for me, it was just, I wanted to get, I wanted to know the, the, the depths of 
the organization. At that time, it was called The Firm. Um, I knew that it had many layers. It had many levels. Um, because when I used to go to the Purple House, that's where we used to meet all the time. We used to go there. And what would, to, what would, what would happen is there would be cars coming. People would come and visit. It would be like spectacular. People would come with Mercedes Benz. They would come with BMs. They would come with, you know, Pajeros. There was like expensive cars. So it is like the high level gangsters. Yeah. And, and, and we weren't allowed to go into that room. You know, there was this inner circle that they met and my, my mind was like, I wonder what's going on behind those doors. I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder what they're discussing, you know? And for me, it was like, in my head, I was thinking to myself, one day I'll get there, you know? So for now, let me just do what they want me to do. I mean, I started as a runner. Now I'm doing housebreaking and, and now I've got a gun at the age of 16. So my responsibilities are getting more. So by the time I was like thinking, maybe I'll get there. And you, you said they gave you a gun at the age of 16. At the age of 16. Um, that was an initiation, right? That was my first initiation. I remember when they were sitting in a circle and they invited me in and they let me stand in the middle and... Um, he stood up and he said to the to the men, now, guys, this is the boy I was telling you about. He's really becoming a man. He's stepping into his own. And today we want to acknowledge him and we want to formally make him part of the gang. And I was like, but I haven't I always been part of the gang. But this day was like, now you are part of us. You know, so I do feel like at that point at 16, I was now stepping in and I was now being allowed into the inner circle. And as he handed me this... Uh, it was, a, it was a white towel, and as I opened it, I still remember it was a snub nose 38 special and eight bullets, you know, and he said to me, this is your license, this is your life, this is who you are, don't ever lose this because if you lose this, you lose your life, so, um, and that's how my journey then started. And would you mind telling me about the initiation that happened? Yeah, so in order to really claim your place and to claim your, your position within the gang and to actually make it, uh, you know, acceptable to everybody, you have to take a life. You know, you have to kill someone. And the person that you have to kill is random. You know, um, you can't say who you want to kill. As the person that's being initiated, you can't say, um, I know I've got someone in mind that I want to kill. It doesn't work like that. They would just literally drive around, like drive and, and they just pick someone randomly. Maybe him, and then he'll say, no, 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 um, doesn't look like, okay, maybe this one, you know. So it'd be that kind of thing. They would joke about it. I mean, I was driving in the car, me being nervous as I am, and I just, they showed me how to load the gun, and they were saying to me, not this one, oh, this one, and then they stopped. Was and that they, kind of their way of messing with you a little bit, I maybe? think they wanted me to, because they could see that I was nervous, and I, I won't lie, I was like, I have to step up to someone and shoot this person. So, and they just wanted me to, to become more at ease, and not to think about it. And they kept on saying to me like, you know, bra, when you step up to this person, all you do is just pull the trigger. You're not gonna see anything, you're gonna feel anything, just do it, you know? Um, so for me, it was that thing. And I remember we stopped at a train station. And uh, so this, this lady was coming and as she was stepping out of the, out of the platform, um, out of the train station, um, she was walking towards her car. And I stepped up to her because that was now the target. Um, and as I went up to her, I took out my firearm and I pointed it at her. And I remember her saying to me, you can have whatever I've got. Please don't shoot. But I saw her hand move to her stomach, you know, and when her hand moved to her stomach, she said to me, please don't shoot. I'm pregnant. 
So when she said that for me, I felt like, yes, like, you know, if I'm going to shoot this woman, I'm killing two people, you know? And I was like, I was, there was a conundrum for me. It was like, I'm at that crossroads right now. I know that if I go back to the car, if I run back to this car, I'm going to be in big trouble because this woman saw my face and these men are not just going to leave it. So for me, it was like, okay, let me improvise. And I just said to her, listen, where's your car? Get into your car. And that is where I said to get into your car, let's drive, follow that car. You know, I felt like if I could bring these men the car and I couldn't drive, but I wanted her to drive. And I thought that if I could bring them the car instead of shooting her, at least that would make it seem like you did make it. it seem like I did something, you know. Um, but as we were driving and I was talking to her, I realized that, you know, what, bro, if we get to where we need to get to and this woman is still in this car, they're going to kill her. Right. So I was like, bruh, when we got to Fort Trekker, I remember that day like it was yesterday. We got to Fort Trekker Road and there was this busy Mr. Video that time on the corner. And I said to her, bruh, if the car stops, jump out and run into that shop. And as the car stopped, she jumped out and she ran into the shop. One of the guys came and like, what the hell happened? And he was like arguing with me. And then he got into the car and then he drove the car, you know. So luckily at that moment, she survived. You know, and obviously I got the tongue lashing of my life. Um, and it was at that moment where this guy was giving me a tongue lashing of why I did it. She saw my face and eat the coordinata lunk. And as we were driving up, the police cornered us. They were all closing the, the exits and that's where we were all arrested. And um, yeah, so that was the... And was that your first time getting arrested? That was my first time getting arrested. I was like so shocked. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I do know that I was told that even if, if, if ever I do get arrested, I mustn't worry. They're going to sort everything out. They'll take care of me. They'll get the... Take care uh, of your family. They'll take care of my family. They'll, they'll just sort me out. So I mustn't stress about it. And so for me, that was the point. You know, I was, I was happy. Um, I, was, I was overjoyed. I was like, okay, cool, no problem. So when I was finding the police van and we were all sitting in there, the men started talking like, welcome, you know, you're the youngest. Um, you need to take this case. You need to say to the judge, you don't you know us. You take the fall for us. You need to take the fall for us. And I was like, yeah, wow, I wouldn't mind. I mean, uh, what, <laughs> what's, what's the worst that can happen? It's just, I mean, she survived, right? Um, so that was the thing. So I was like, and, and they promised, they made promises. They said, we're going to come and visit you. Don't worry, you're still young. You're not going to get a lot of years. You know, they're just going to give you like a 2761IB, which is a beta straf, an outside sentence. And you're going to be back at your house like by tonight. So don't stress about it. Just go there and just say what you need to say. And I was naive. I was stupid. The police officer asked questions. I answered. Um, and I remember I was, I was um, sent to uh, Polsmore. So were you sent straight to Polsmore or were you sent to like a juvenile detention first? Straight to Polsmore. At the age of? At the age of 16. At the age of 16. At the age of 16, I went to straight to Polsmore. Um, many people said that I wasn't supposed to be there, but they kept telling me about Bailasis, Bailasis, Bailasis. It's like apparently cases have, have levels. So if it's a certain level. Well, if you're like a shoplifter, yeah, maybe it's a bit different. But if you're like planning a murder, maybe exactly, it's. Exactly. Be, so it yeah. becomes. So it's like, no, you have to go to holding. So um, there was a juvenile center there. Um, and I went there and they held me there for, for a week. And then um, I waited. They didn't come and visit as they promised. Um, and then I went to court and in court, I said, you know what, judge, it's my thing. I don't know these guys. I'm alone in this. 
I'm taking the fall. And the judge said to me, are you sure you want to do that? You know, and I said, yeah, of course. I mean, what's the worst that can happen in my head? And I remember on the, 20, on the 21st of November, 1999, the judge looked at me and he said, welcome. I sentence you to 23 years in prison. I couldn't believe it. My, I'm like, you know what? It's to like 23 years in 23 prison. 23 years in prison. Um, I remember that day my grandmother came to see me and she brought me this uh, plastic uh, Tupperware, ice cream Tupperware that had chicken and like my favorite Sunday food. And when she gave it to me and I went down to the hole, it was tasteless. It's like my senses just left. Everything just went. You were completely numb. I was completely numb because I was trying to understand the fact that I am 16 years old and I've just been sentenced to 23 years in prison. I remember being given my green overall and I was going back to prison and guys were laughing. Police officers, correctional officers were laughing saying, by the time you get out of prison, welcome cars will be flying. You know, it was terrible realizing that my life was over. And... um. What was it like when you first walked into Paul's Mall? I'm not going to lie, it was terrible. You know, it was like, it's something that I would not wish on my worst enemy. It's, it's a place that I wouldn't want young boys or young men to go to because it's hell on earth. Keeping in mind that uh, Paul's Mall Prison is one of the most uh, five deadliest prisons in the world. You know, and I stepped into that space and as I stepped into that space, I remember this guy coming to me. I was pushed into the, into, the, into the prison cell. I went in, this guy came up to me and he asked me, welcome. He didn't ask me welcome. He said, the police officer just pushed me, welcome, go in here. And I went in. And as I stood there, what happened was, um, there's two of the prisoners came to me and asked me, who are you in prison? And I said, welcome. And when I said, welcome, this guy slapped me so hard in my face. And then um, he asked me again, who are you in prison? I said, welcome. And then he slapped me again. Um, and there was this guy standing next to me. And they asked him, who are you in prison? He said, Franz von Tronalanga. And nothing happened to him. And that so, means that you're a 28. Yeah, you are, you are willing to become a 28. Franz, you know, means somebody doesn't know, but he is willing to learn to become a 28. And when he said, Franz von Tronalanga, I decided, you know what? Let me say the same thing he's saying. So when they asked me again, who are you in prison? I said, France and John Alanga, and nothing happened. And you, you had no idea what I it meant? I had no idea what I was saying. I just thought, like, thank God, no slaps. And um, <laughs> then this right. guy came and he just took me to the back of the room and says, we are so proud that you chose us. I'm like, like, how do you mean I chose you? Like, that's when I, it dawned on me that I just now chose to become a 28 without even knowing. And... I thought you had to work your way up. So mm -hmm. from like 26, 27 to 28. No. Is it not? So if you want like to become that. a 28, you just have to do what they tell you. So in, in prison, there's three numbers, right? The 26s, 27s, and 28s. And when you are sent to prison and you come into the room, all three numbers are present, 26s, 27s, 28s. But the first people that you meet are the 26s. They are the ones that come to you and ask you, who are you in prison? Um, they are sent by the 28 and then they are given um, uh, an instruction by the 27 because the 26s and 27s are closely linked. And then when they come to you, they ask, they just give the information back 
to the 28th to say that this guy, he's just said now he is willing to become a 28th. So we will accompany him to the gates, just symbolic. So they bring you to the gates of the 28th and then you are led in because the right is the is the is the 26s and 27s and on the left is the 28s so then you can either go right or left to choose you know um and that's how it basically works and what is the function of each number so what is the like initiation and what are the tasks the 26s have to do the 27s and the 28s i would i would like to explain it in in layman's terms i'll use the corporate uh, setup so you'll get you'll get a director of a company that's the 28 He's always the director. And the then man in charge. Yeah, the man in charge. And you'll get HR, who's the one that works on policies and procedures. That's the 27. And then you get the distributors and the suppliers. That's the 26. Okay. In that order. So the 28 obviously the top. They're at the top. And you basically became a 28 on your first day. I became a 28 unknowingly on my first day. And that is why I say I became, and people ask me, so why did you become a 28? I always say to them, I became a, a, a 28 by default. <laughs> you didn't even know. I didn't even know. It's just by default. I want to get back to like your first day in prison. Because mm-hmm. this must be such a shock to your, the system. Because usually you can go do and see whoever you want at whatever time you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly you're locked up. You cannot leave um, you're told where to sleep, told what to eat. I mean, what was this like? What was it like on your first day and your first night in prison? I think for me, the my first night was the scariest because you are you are you are shown many things on your first night. Um, it's called borspelt lich. You know, borspelt lich means like they they lift, they just they show you they they allow you to peek into the danger of prison so that you can choose what you want to do with the rest of your life. And it's just the, the, the conditioning of the prison itself. You know, it's like, um, you don't know what goes on in here, so we're going to give you a sneak peek of what goes on. So you, you will witness you will witness men being stabbed, you will witness men being beaten. All on the first night. All on the first night and in different ways and forms. Um, you're in a room where you're supposed to be 20 men, but there's 80 men in this room. You know, you are so everyone's just sleeping on top of each other. Everybody's just sleeping on top of each other. Instead of having a double bank, you have a triple. You know, in, instead of having a mattress, you have this little sponge that's on the floor and you have to sleep like sardines. You know, everybody's just stepping on each other, you know, and you see all of that. And when there's a taking place, what are you going to, you can't help. You can't do anything. All you can do is just look at what's happening and, you know, and just hope that, they don't come for you, you know. And were you attacked on the first night or? Not necessarily, you know. Um, they just want to scare you on the first I night. I think the first night was just to scare me. Remember, I had chosen to become a 28. So you were kind of protected So I was kind of already in the, in, the, in the loop, you know. Um, those that did not choose, that wanted to be schoen France. Um, schoen France means someone that doesn't choose a side. Like, you know what, bra? I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I don't want to be part of this stuff. I just want to be left alone. Those ones are like scared to the max. Things happen to them because nothing is protecting them. Um, and, and lo and behold, if you are caught snitching, that's even a death sentence in there. You know, so, so for me, it was like seeing all of these things happening. I realized that, you know what? I, I think I made a better choice of just choosing to become a 28 because if I did not choose this, then I would have been a victim. You know, and that is how my life started working out. And um, 
I mean, did you even manage to get to sleep on your first night or not a chance? No, not at all. I mean, I, I don't think that for me, I think that I developed insomnia, you know, because it was difficult to sleep in prison for the first few weeks um, because you were going from one room to the next. You were constantly being moved around um, because the, the, te the technique was not to make you too comfortable. Um, it was constantly to move you around so you can understand that as a, as a first offender, you, you, you had a choice. You had, a, you had to make a decision, you know. Um, and I remember when I made my decision, it was a guy coming to me saying, welcome, you're going to be here for the, for, the, for the rest of your life. You might as well make a decision to become something much more than just a 28, you know. And that is where he then said to me, if you stab a correctional officer, you can start getting your rank and you can start getting acknowledgement and you can start getting recognition and people are going to start, you know, following you as an individual. So become a leader on your own. So what do you want to do? You have a choice. It's crazy how by doing those kinds of things, you become someone that's looked up to. Exactly. And um, when did you start ranking up and earning your stars? I think when I was, I was 20, 21 when, when I, when I uh, stabbed the first correctional officer. And I remember that night as if it was yesterday. And the funny thing is this correctional officer was a very good friend, you know, um, and I'm going to say why. Because he used, to, he used to come to me during exercise and he used to ask me, do you have enough sugar? Do you have enough milk? Can I bring you more bread? He was a very nice correctional officer. You know, I don't know what he saw in me, but he liked talking to me. And he used to warn me and say, don't become part of this that's going on in prison. You've got a bright future. Don't lose hope because you've got 23 years, you know. He was a very good guy, you know. And I remember that evening when they called me to say, okay, Cobra, we accept your, your, your request to stab. So you get three blades in prison. You get a short blade, which is just to cause an injury to a correctional officer. And then you get a long blade and then you get a death blade. And I thought they were probably going to give me a short blade because I was like, it was my first time. They're not going to send me to kill a correction officer. But they gave me a death blade. And when you are given a death blade, you must kill a correction officer. And it's going to be a correction officer that they choose and will tell you to go to. And they chose your friend. And they chose this guy. So you can imagine as I was stepping up to this correction officer, he was number one, welcoming. He did not consider or contemplate any danger whatsoever because I remember when I went up to him, he was very warm and he was very welcoming. He was like completely, completely unknown as to what's going to happen. But let me explain the reason why I did it because, and I think this doesn't justify what I did, but it does somehow give a listener or a person that's listening the understanding that in prison, some context, some context in prison, when you are asked to kill someone, you are given a death blade. And accompanying you with that death blade is two other individuals. And they also both have knives, which is also death blades. And There's, the ones for you and the ones for the officer. They are both for you. That's just the point. It's like, if you don't stab the correctional officer, you will get stabbed. But they are there to serve two purposes. So they are called drat and khlas. They are there to serve two purposes. Drat meaning a person that hears everything and Khlas is a person that sees everything. So these are the two gentlemen that accompany you. And if you don't, if you don't stab the collection officer, they will stab you. They will kill you because you failed to do what you said you were going to do. 
or they will stab you because you wanted to maybe tell the correctional officer about what's going to happen. The other purpose that they serve is that once you've stabbed the correctional officer, you have to throw the knife to the back so that they can pick it up and walk away from the scene. So they take away the murder weapon. And in prison, if there's no murder weapon... There's no murder. There's no murder. You did not commit it, so how did you stab him with your finger? You know, and in the courtyards that time, there weren't cameras. So it was always your word against theirs. And so did you end up following through with it or? I had to, I didn't have a choice. And I was, I was 21 years old that time, I remember. Um, and the second time was when I was 23. Uh, by the age of, of 25, I had four stars on both my shoulders. So it was eight. And by that time I became- Eight the, what? Eight stars. And that by that time I became the youngest first star general within the prison system because you, you either become a first star general at the age of 30 or 40. But I got to that stage at, at the age of 25 and I started to understand the number and I was very good. And how did you manage to get there so quickly? Was it just because you were so ruthless or? I think for me it was the ruthlessness um, and the fact that I was very strategic and I spoke more than one language and I learned more languages and prison has its own language. I was able to master the language in a week, you know, um, and it was a combination of languages, which I spoke Khosa, I spoke Sutu, I spoke, you know, I spoke many languages. So it was easy for me to understand and calculate and put one and one together because the only reason why you actually survive prison is understanding the story within the number. And the story within a number has so many roots that you need to always constantly unpack those roots. And for me, it was easy because most of them were born from Natal. Most of them were born from KwaZulu-Natal, Durban, those places. And you just needed to understand this. It was like a history lesson unfolding. And I was kind of like very, I loved history at school. So I did it. So it was like part of my, so for me, when they told me about education being a weapon, I now was able to use it to grow my understanding within the number. And I'm sure your education, I was just about to say, helped you progress within exactly. the, the gang. Exactly. Because you were able to do so many different things. Exactly. And being a, you said a four-star general, mm -hmm. what power does that give you? Well, it gives you control over the prison. So is, is that the top rank? That's the top rank. It gives you power over the prison. You can literally say and command correctional officers, as well as prisoners, you know. Um, and you, how many people were you in charge of? Two and a half thousand. Is, does that mean two and a half thousand twenty-eights or? No, the entire prison. So it was there only two and a half thousand people in prison? And my, and my unit, like where I was, there was two and a half thousand men. And I knew this because they used to do roll call. And I used to ask the, the prison guard, how many people are in prison at this specific moment? He would say, no, it's like 2,400 and something, you know, or 2,500. I used to, I, I knew how much. And being able to, run the prison like a well-oiled machine because the kitchen, the, the, the corridors, the, the, the orderly lines, the uh, shops, all of those were, were, were my strings to pull. I needed to understand that in order to run this prison successfully and make the money that I was making, I needed to be ruthless in my, in my leadership. You were making money in prison? Yes. I used to make 500,000 rand a month, give or take. Doing what? Solicitation prostitution. Inside of prison? Inside prison. And where does everyone get money from? So money was, at first you could have money, remember in the, back in the days, and then uh, there was this new legislation passed 
where money was no longer uh, used, so it became a cashless society. Um, when I talk about a cashless society, I'm talking about the fact that now we no longer had money in prison. So everything that you had, um, money that was brought to you during the visit used to be put onto your property and you would get a card that says how much money you have, you know. Um, but there were still ways of getting money into prison. And there were many ways of getting money into prison. And were you keeping all of that money in prison or getting it out? So what would happen is that once we've reached a certain target for the month, a certain, that money needed to go out. And outside the system works like this. We have a board of trustees outside, which are, which are uh, ex-generals that had been in prison before, but now run nightclubs, they run various businesses. And their job is to take the money, put it in holding, use whatever they need to use, and then put some away for you. You know, so if you need anything, you'll get it. If you need this done, you'll get it. And then if you retire as a general one day, um, you have enough money to live on. You have enough money to live on. But that money does, is not just yours because it might be it might be running a club in Long Street. It might be it might have bought a house on Clifton. You know, it might be, you know, it, it's working somewhere. So you will be placed strategically there to make sure that the business continues. So whether you retire as a general, you never retire. You're always part of the system. You know, so and that is the and that is the the, the the frustration of the number is that it never stops. It grows continuously, advancing itself in that way. And might I say that the number is two hundred and eighty six years old. Imagine. And another thing that I wanted to ask you, kind of moving away from from the number, was um did anyone come and visit you in prison? So the friends that promised to come, they never came. And that is something something I always tell kids that that feel like they need to join the gangs. Like, you know what? Once you're gone, you're gone. You know, and they, they don't think about you. They don't come and visit you. They don't come and see you. None of that happened. Um, the person that I never wanted to listen to, which was my grandmother, was the only person that came to visit me which was quite ironic because, I mean, she used to say, don't do this, don't do that. And I was like, ah, you don't tell me. And then she was the one that normally came and said, I'm here to see you every Saturdays, like clockwork at nine. My name used to be called and I used to think it's one of these guys. But when I got there, it was my grandmother. Um, my relationship with my parents just died. Um, Did they never come Yeah, they you? practically disowned me. Um, my mom died in 2001 and my father in 2004, and I could not go to their funerals because I was a maximum uh, prisoner at that moment, and maximum, if you, if you are sentenced to a certain time in prison, you are not allowed to do visits or go to a funeral, but if you are below five years and you're in a medium or minimum institution, you are then allowed to go out, attend the funeral, and come back to prison. And um, I also want to know... Um, what are some of the things that happen in prison that maybe people don't generally hear about? Because the thing with Paulsmore, it's been, it's a very infamous name in South Africa. People know it all over the world mm -hmm. as well, because it is one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. Um, and what we see on, in the media and in movies uh, isn't necessarily what it's actually like. There. I mean, is it, is it as bad as it looks online or is it worse? And what kind of things happen there? Um, I think that if, if you look at mainstream media, it's 10 times worse in reality. You know, um, for instance, 
and this is my personal and 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 very honest and and transparent objective in relation to prison is that imagine yourself in a place like that having to make sure as a correctional officer or even as a head of prison that your correctional officers are safe you have 400 correctional officers that are working for you and that are in that space among 2 to 3 to 4000 offenders and anything can happen at any given time you know you could be overrun you know so you don't have a choice but to somehow work out a relationship which is not known um, there's this thing that I love that the Americans use on television saying that we do not negotiate with terrorists, but they actually do. <laughs> um, and that's the same thing in our South African prisoners. The, the head of prison will say to you that we do not acknowledge the number, but they actually do. They have to. You know, because if it wasn't for the number, and this is my, that's why I said this is my personal opinion and, and not just my personal, but my honest opinion is that in South Africa we have thousands of street gangs. And when I'm talking about street gangs, I'm talking about yuckies, dixies, American mongrels. We've got thousands of these street gangs. Now imagine if these street gangs go to prison. They could continue killing each other. They could continue hunting each other's enemies. But when they get to prison, they have no other choice but to fall within one of those numbers and live as brothers. So is there no other gang in prison? No other There's gang. It's just the number. Just the number. The number is dominant. You'll not get the Brookies gang or the Yakis or the Americans in prison. It is 26, 27, 28. And they are all susceptible to that one law, which is you live together as one. Don't come here with your street violence and want to just kill. Oh, well, it doesn't work like that. There's that kind of control that the number offers. So... I could understand why a correctional system would need that number to survive. Because if it wasn't there, it would be chaos. It would be a free-for-all. It would be a free-for-all. It and would be... what happens when someone within the gangs, within the numbers, um, kills someone else in the number without permission mm-hmm. to do so? There's, 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 a, there's a... It's called... There's a magistrate dynamic within the number. Like there's people that would literally sit your case who are also in the number and they will then decide which would be the appropriate action to take. And in a case where you've taken a life, your life will also be taken. And it also depends on who the person is that you've taken. It might not have just been a normal prison. It might have been a sergeant. It might have been a captain in the number. So that's the normal thing that sometimes happen is that they will have a case. Uh, they will have a court case. And they will hear, and then at the end of the day, they will then decide what would be the feasible punishment. I also want to ask, because obviously there's a lot of abuse in, in prison, mm-hmm. um, whether it be sexual or, or, or any form of abuse. Um, are people in like the higher rankings abusing people in the lower rankings, or is it the number doesn't abuse each other? They abuse people that kind of stand up against the number and say, we're not going to be a part of this. You know, does that make sense? It does make sense. The thing is, there's a, there's a saying that says that uh, power, absolute power corrupts. And because there's one general in a prison, sometimes what happens is that depending on who that general is and how he chooses to be a leader determines the, the progression or the growth of, of, of the number within the prison. So if he's an abusive 
and he's a dictator and it's just about him and it's just about what he wants, then that tends to turn into a situation where there's constant bloodbath or there's constant stabbing or there's constant abuse happening and stuff like that. But once you get a, a general that has a heart, that understands policies, that understands procedures, that really has the, the, the number in his heart and he operates according to that, then it is not really that bad. But does that mean that they, they hurt people with outside the number, that aren't inside the number? The reason why people sometimes get hurt that are outside the number is because people choose not to become part of the number. And in order to not become part of the number, you have to pay your way through to survive. So it's either your family pays every single month a certain amount of money to make sure that you are safe. Um, there's certain things that your family members can do outside to make sure that you are safe inside. So that's a kind of barter system that happens, but everybody in prison has to pay their way. There's like, there's no, there's no two way about that. It's either you're in the number or you're paying your way in some way. I now want to know, because you obviously, you're not a gang member anymore. Mm -mm. You've left the 28s. Can you tell me, I mean, when did you decide to leave the 28s and how, yeah. When, I mean, when did you decide to leave the 28s? I think for me, it was, it was, it was the time that I was, I was at a courtyard you know, outside during exercise. And I was sitting there with my colonels and my captains and we were just chilling. And there were these guys in front of us that were having a conversation, you know, and they were talking about, yo, brah, I miss. You know, it was this, then they tell you the story about how he went into this house and he saw this girl laying on the bed and she wasn't dressed and, you know, he had his way with her and it was so nice and, he was, and they were laughing about it. And the other guy was adding on to it, like, yo, brah, and how did you do it? And, and they started laughing, you know. Um, the other one was talking about how they're robbing people and how they would kill. And it was like nothing. It was like a big joke to them. It was them. a big joke to them. And I looked at them and I said to myself, if I were to be a father one day, how am I going to protect my daughter against men like this? You know, I was like... And at the time, men like yourself. Yeah, men like myself. And, and I reasoned like that because I thought to myself that if I were to go out tomorrow, my daughter or my son would never be safe because if they can't get to me, they'll get to her or to him. And then that's how they're going to get through to me. So I would never really be a good father in a situation like that. And for me, it was like I needed to change my life, not based on the fact that I wanted to change my because it was a beautiful thing to do, but I needed to change because I knew that I could not affect the change that I wanted to affect if I were to still stay in this position that I was in. And uh, there was also this joke uh, I, I used to think about. I said, like, imagine if my daughter brings back a guy and I'm at home and I'm sitting there and my daughter comes with a guy and he walks like me, he talks like me, like a gangster. And he says, like, I salute you, and I was like, would I be able to judge my daughter for bringing back a guy that is a gangster? Because daughters normally bring back men that assimilate their fathers. And so for me, that really gave me a lot to think about. And that is why I decided that I can't do this anymore. And something that, because I, I asked people on Instagram uh, what, they, what questions they wanted to mm -hmm. uh, ask you. And one of the questions that kept coming up was, I thought if you left the gang, mm -hmm you would get killed mm -hmm. you're, or you're not allowed to leave the gang at all. Um, I mean, how did you manage to leave the 28s without being murdered? Which is kind of like interesting because, you know, when you, when you're a general, you have the authority to write law, to pass it and to bind it. 
So when you're in prison and you're a general, you have you can write a law. It's called an excess, an exit law. It's like the only way that a general can leave is through retirement, but he needs to state his case and judged by four of his peers, which are also generals. And then those four need to then decide whether they would agree to let you go as part of a, 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 a almost like a court hearing that takes place, you know. So when I was serving and I was doing my thing, so um, so in prison there's this person called the book and he's tattooed all over, you know. Um, that person holds the entire secret of the 28s or whatever happens in the prison. On he his is, skin. Yeah, on his skin. He's, he's, and the only person that can read him is the general. Nobody else can read him but the general because it's the language of generals. So he would be the book and on him would be written whatever you have done in the past and what laws you've, you've passed and what you've done. And so entire history is on him, like everywhere, his, his ears, his eyelids, every part that can be inked will be inked. And he is a book. He's a very important person in prison. Um, if we talk about people that are important, we talk about the fact that even more than the general is the book. Because on the book is written the entire history, the history. of everything that has happened. Um, so what would happen is, is he would be invited into that sitting. And as they decide on what needs to happen to you based on the request you've put in front, you enter into that circle of these four men completely naked, number and one. And I read that... Um the people that decide your fate mm -hmm. are called the executioners? They are called the executioners. And the reason why they're called executioners because that's their purpose. They are called to execute a duty. And because you're a general, you are a duty. Do you understand? Your name is authority, so therefore you become, you are a duty. So when they come into that space as generals, it's only another general that can take out another general, you know? So when they stand behind you, the two generals in front of you are the judges, they are listening to your case. They are listening to what your reasons are. And the two standing behind you are the ones that, are, that have the knives and they are the ones that are going to stab you in your kidneys and twist it and, you know, and you'll bleed and you'll die. And all of this is being recorded while this is happening so that once you are dead, it will then be told into the entire prison. There will be a lockdown. Prison will, some things will burn. And then someone else will be put in your place. And then for eight days, they'll be mourning my death, write songs about me and poetry and welcome was a great guy and blah, blah, blah. And all of these things will happen. And then eight days later, they'll choose somebody else. That's just, imagine being remembered for eight days. And why did they decide to let you go? So it's kind of like a very interesting story. And um, I remember when I was finishing stating my case as to why I want to retire. I said to them, guys, I really want to retire. I want to... I just want to live my life differently. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just tired. Like I've been doing this for seven years, you know. Um, when I said that to them, they were like, okay, um, can you please give us an opportunity just to think about it? So step out of the circle. And as I was stepping out of the circle, the one general that was standing in front said to me, welcome, do you remember six years ago? I could not read. I could not write. You taught me to read and write. So the thing for me was like, no matter how brutal or how, or how violent I was as a general. The only thing that really saved my life was the fact that I taught this guy to read and write. And that is why I believe so strongly in the power of kindness. That one act of kindness saved my life. That's the reason why I'm sitting here today, because of that one act of kindness. I taught someone 
that I didn't even remember that I taught, but he remembered. He said, because of you, I can read and I can write today. Thank you. And that guy actually gave me a pass. And because he gave me a pass, the rest gave me a pass. That's unbelievable, eh? And it just shows once again, this seems to be a very recurring theme in your life, the power of education. Exactly. So once you were let out of the gang, what happened from there? I heard that you wanted to be transferred to another prison. Mm-hmm. Brantfley, was, was it called? I was, I was transferred to Brantfley um, because they had an educational system there that they were implementing, which was called ABET, which was Adult Basic Education and Training. Um, I went there and then I enrolled at UNISA and I did my teacher's qualification um, through correspondence and I got it. And then I started a school there um, whereby I continued teaching offenders to read, to write, numeracy. I mastered um, in, in human and social sciences. And so I started, you know, developing ABET centers um, within prison. And then I was transferred to Goodwood and because of my good behavior. So when you go to Goodwood, it's like you're going to get closer to home. So they didn't send me to Portsmouth, they sent me to Goodwood. And then from Goodwood, I was then released in 2012 on the, on the 3rd of July, 10 years later. I want to know, and we don't have to get into too detail about this, but when you're in prison and say you were sentenced to 23 years, right? Mm-hmm. And you commit another crime in prison, say like attacking a warden or uh, one of the, the other pris- uh, inmates. Mm-hmm. Why does your, does, does your sentence get extended? Yes, it does. If you are found guilty, because so, and you court. were never found guilty, because as I said, it is there was a knife. You can't prove it, you know. <laughs> and there was never a knife. And there was never a knife, okay. you know. And and if there were there were to have been a knife, then these two guys that were supposed to do it would be killed, because then they messed up. Then they yeah they they you didn't know, do their job properly. Exactly. So they would they would basically get killed. So, what year were were you released from prison? Um, on the third of July, twenty twelve. And how many years in total did you serve? I served 14 years in total. And I mean, what was that like when you walked out the gates? Because when you went in, you were literally a boy. Exactly. And now you were a man. Exactly. I mean, what was that like? So the world, I left the world big, you know, um, like it was big. Everything was Was there flying cars anywhere? No, none. (laughs) (laughs) I left the world and everything was big because I was small. When I came out, everything was small now because I was big, you know. So everything felt so surreal, you know. Um, that fear um, kind of like also settled in as to what are you going to do now with the rest of your life? You're outside, you know. Um, how are you going to put, are you going to piece everything together? Um, I remember when I got home, um, I got visited the night by guys from the neighborhood, like, oh, the guy's out. And they were all generaling and saluting. and Back with the boys. Back with the boys. And they came there with cars. They came there with drugs. And we're like, this is yours. We kept it for you. I said, mm Baba, take your stuff and leave. I don't want anything from you. I now have learned what it was like to, be, to have been used at my age. And now that I'm coming out, wanting to start my life, you're coming here with your, your, your gifts, you know, uh, and clothing in, 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 in sheep's clothing as if you're selling Wolves me. in sheep's clothing. Yeah, wolves in sheep's clothing coming here to sell me a pipe dream again. And then if I take this money because you know that I'm, gonna, I'm struggling, you can see I don't have any money. Now you're coming to give me money. You're coming to give me drugs. I said, no, it's cool. I'll go the long route. I'll get the disappointments because I remember when I used to go for job interviews um, and they used to say to me, we can see on your CV there was, there's a 14-year gap. <laughs> Where were you? 
like I like I was at a university. You, you know, on a sabbatical? Like, yeah, I was like studying like for 14 years. And I was like, okay, cool, where am I? was like at Polsmo. <laughs> and um, they would say, okay, cool, don't call us, we'll call you. Yeah. You know, and that's it. And bye. Uh, Bye-bye. And that was the constant. <laughs> so you never. Yeah, you know, I remember I was going for this interview where I was like, dressed in a suit and I covered all my tattoos and I felt like I was going to get the job. Um, and everything was so perfect. You know, I was, the, the, the girl even came there, the woman, she gave me coffee. She made me sit down. She's like, wow, guy, you know, it's like, uh, you look so cute. You look so handsome. And it was nice. She spoke to me so beautifully. I, I felt so special. You know, um, when I went into the interview and they interviewed me, I like I'm going to be completely honest in the interview. I'm not going to lie to them. I said, you know what, guys, um, I've been in prison for 14 years. Everything just changed. Lady came. She took the cup. She was like, come, let, let us show you out. It's like immediately like just took the cup. Just and they like, you straight out. Then showed me out. And I knew the, the, the power of stigmatization, of discrimination, especially coming out of prison and not being able to get the opportunities. Um, but 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 I had to work hard at that, you know. And um, I mean, when did you start your foundation? I think that I started the foundation when I realized that a lot of kids were were interested in my story. Um, a lot of kids also admired me for all the wrong reasons, and I felt that if I can start a foundation to change the story, because the bling, you know, rings and chains attract them. And in the process, I start having a conversation with them because I can understand their minds. They're young, they're impressionable, they're naive, they're stupid. So I can start telling my story in a way for them to understand. So it's just like hooking them in. And they also see someone that looks like a gangster. Exactly. But has the mind of someone who is reformed. Exactly. And that was the, and that was the, it was like a friend of mine used to make a joke and says, you, 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 you like a pimp, but you're also a preacher, you know? Um, and I used to laugh at that. Um, and so for me, it was like that kind of like the, the kids see the gangster, but the minute they engage with me, they see a healer. Um, and it's no longer a dope dealer, but they see a hope dealer. And that's the kind of thing I that like I love. That. Like, you know, I'm not a dope dealer, I'm a hope dealer. And that's what the kids interact with. And so Bright Spark was born from that, um, whereby we work with young boys and girls caught in gangs. Um, we also help them out of the gangs. Um, we also, as an organization, um, do peace conversations and negotiations with gangs. People sometimes say to us, but gangs should not exist. Why do we still negotiate with them? Um, I sometimes say to people, like, when you are robbed in the street, you know, that's not a gangster that robbed you. That's a tzotzi. There's a difference between a gangster and a tzotzi and a scully. You know, a scully will rob you because he's going to take the money and he's going to buy himself something that he wants to just you know, drugs and stuff like that. Gangsters are sophisticated thinkers. They strategize, they plan. I think the people at the top are sophisticated and strategized and plan. Or are you talking about all gangsters? I think if, if, if you look at it, I'm, I mean, I don't know the, 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 the disclaimer on the show, but I think politicians are gangsters. But anyway, my thing is like anybody that can, that can, that can survive within a criminal network and follow the law. And follow the law while doing it. Those are gangsters. And they have some sort of sophistication. They have it. a lot of sophistication. I always say to people that do not think that because people are in prison that they are stupid. You know, um, as I said, if the number is 286 years old, imagine sophistication in running that kind of pro process for so many years, keeping it in sync with our times. Even every single day it develops. Our young people still want to become gangsters. Our young kids still get hooked on to this, although we've been talking to them about not, 
parents have been preaching, teachers have been preaching, pastors have been preaching, but yet we still see our kids going into that movement, you know. Um, and how do you stop that cycle? And that is what our foundation is currently doing. So what we've decided to do was like we needed to look at what is it that our kids lack? And we are putting processes in place to make sure that they get like the thing for me in many homes is like there's no fathers. There's, there's single headed households like the mother is raising the son, the mother is raising the daughter, the mother is doing everything on her own and the dad is nowhere to be found. You have so many homes that there are no father figures that these homes are just basically they are, ri they are, they are, they are ripe for, for, for these so-called opportunities where kids just get to be part of gangs um, because young boys are searching to become men and only and for an, belonging and for belonging and only another man can 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 give that boy that specific opportunity to become the man that he wants to be so and gangs normally take advantage of that you know and that is why we always say to parents be present be available you know don't don't do this thing of like let me just throw money at my child let me just give him money and you will be okay it's not just about giving your child money or, or, or making your child feel okay, but it's like showing them that, showing you're there them for them. that you are there. Like uh, another boy, he was arrested. Um, we were working in Westbury. The police came and they arrested him. And the mom was like, no, how can you arrest my son? And don't, 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 and all of that stuff. And I said to the mom, but your boy has an iPhone and you have a Mobicell. How is it possible that as a mom, you don't even know? Like parents are so naive that the children come back with new clothes, new techies, new devices, and they so, like... I think either they're not present or they choose to not read the signs exactly. that are right in front of their faces because it's easier. Exactly. You know? um, another thing I actually wanted to talk about was you were in a movie mm -hmm. <laughs> with Eric Banner yes. and Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, how did that even happen? You know, it was, it, it's actually interesting because the, 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 if you watch the movie, the p first part of the entire, it's my story. You know, I spoke to uh, Roland, who's the, who's the director, and I gave him that first Who was segment. the director? Uh, Roland Joffe. Okay. Yeah, a very award-winning director, an awesome guy. And so I said to him that, like, that first part, as you see this boy Benjamin coming to prison, him being taken and slapped, and it was, like, exactly uh, my, my life story. And the thing that I loved about this is, like, I remember when Eric, we were going into the cell, and I didn't know which cell we we're going to shoot this movie in. We went into the cell, which was 426 on the second floor. This was the very same cell that I went in the first time when I was thrown into that cell. That's where I got slapped. And was this your first time back in prison? It was my first time back in prison because it was shot in the prison. And I just, I, I just broke down and cried. I was like, Eric even said, just, let's just give welcome just give welcome some time. He needs to just take all of this in. It was like, so, and I was teaching Eric to swear, you know, so he kept on saying push instead of, you know, the other word. <laughs> so I was constantly teaching him to swear. So Teaching for, them the, the yeah, gang the lingo. Uh, and South the African lingo and yeah. all of that stuff. So it was that kind of relationship. I mean, being in a space with international actors was kind of like awesome uh, with, 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 you know, guys like, uh, you know, Watika and like, you know, knowing who he is and, 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 it was just like, it was a humbling experience for me, you know, it was like really, and for me, that's where I felt like, wow, I can actually grow in this. And I started growing in it. I mean, hence the language and how I speak English, like bourgeois and all of that. You stuff. speak so beautifully, yeah. You, know, you really do speak beautifully. So it was that kind of thing of also teaching myself um, to understand the various types of English so that I can actually also perform uh, and also perfect my, 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 my talent as an actor. 
uh, as well as a writer, you know, that I can write and what I write needs to make sense, you know. So that was the kind of field I just basically went into. It was kind of like surreal. Still what is. an experience, eh? It is. And um, I just want to got one or two more questions. Okay. Also from the people on Instagram. <laughs> um, are you now ashamed of your tattoos? Wow, that's a beautiful question. I think um, in the beginning, I used to cover them up because I was ashamed of judgment and what people would think. But then I realized that my tattoos are actually my testimony of where I was. So like they're my scars and they remind me every single day, especially the, 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 the scars, the tattoos on my hand. Whenever I'm thinking of doing anything that's not right, you see the tattoo. I see the tattoos and I'm reminded to just pull back and say, I'm a man of integrity. I'm not going to do this. You know, because a man of integrity is a man that would do something that is right, even though nobody's looking. And another thing I wanted to know was, how do you feel about, um, because obviously through that time, there must have been a lot of people that hurt you and you hurt a lot of people as well. Um, did you have like an immense sense of remorse when you, when you left and kind of started a new life? When I was in prison, there's this program I attended, which was called Restorative Justice. Yo, I must tell you, Restorative Justice changed my life completely. It made me understand the impact that my crime has had on the family. You know, sometimes you think like when you go to somebody and take their phone, it's like, it's just a phone. They'll just buy another one. But you don't know that this person is still paying that phone off. It's the same with the car. This person is paying this car, the house, you know, insurance. You don't know how hard this person is working to just have this phone and yet you come and you just and take this. There's a massive ripple effect. Exactly. And that, that ripple effect is not just the, about taking the person's phone. It's like his contact details were there. He's, 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 he's a counsel on that phone. You literally just, you just, you just messed up a person's life and it will take him weeks or months to recover from that. And another thing that also made me realize with restorative justice was the fact that when you take someone's life, the impact it has on the family, on the children, on the community, on the society, in the world. And just removing that person because you thought that right today I'm going to be a remover of souls. In, in fact, you, you've, just, you've just hurt a mother who loved a husband or you've just taken a son, you've just taken a daughter, you know, you've done this and it has an impact because when, when you take a person's life, you just don't take their life. You also take the entire family's life. Because that person was loved by someone. That person was admired. That person was someone's friend, boyfriend, sister. So that person is, is going to be missed. And so restorative justice taught me that. And that is how I started to understand that if I operate from a place of love, constantly thinking about my actions before doing. And that is why people sometimes say, I don't think like a human being. And I'm happy that I don't think like one because I know what it's like to think like a human. You know, uh, the thing that I can say that I'm happy about prison you know, and I'm really happy that I went there because I saw darkness. I saw death face to face. I realized and I lived it every single day. And it made me realize the importance of appreciating life and not wanting to take it because I know how precious it, how precious it is. And I think that sometimes when you're in that dark place, you come to a point in your life where you realize that you have so much to be grateful for. You have so much to be thankful for. But you take these things, so you take them for granted. The fact that you can wake up in your house, walk to the fridge, take out something to eat, walking into the fridge, I mean, walking into the kitchen and, and just 
The fact that another man cannot do that, another woman cannot do that. There's 286,000 men in prison, almost 8,000 women in, in, in prison, and they don't have that freedom. Yes, some of them did it because they needed to feed their families. Others are doing it because they think it's part of who they are. But just the fact that we as normal people that are now currently living out there and doing the things that we do, we sometimes do not take life we don't take appreciated. We take it so for granted. 100%. And um, during lockdown, I did an interview with a mother who was involved in the, in, in, she was caught in the crossfire, her and her three-year-old son. And everyone else moves on. Mm -hmm. And she has now been left with this boy that is completely brain dead because he was shot in the head. And, um, for all these years, their life has been changed. There's this massive ripple effect that I think is lost on a lot of people in the moment. Mm. You know, because you do something and then you don't see that, you don't see the ripple. Mm. It goes out of sight and you carry on. So I think, I mean, what you're doing with your foundation is so important by stopping the ripple because no one's throwing the rock. Exactly. You know, you're taking the rock out of the hand so there's no ripple. Exactly. And, um, Last question I want to ask is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think that the advice to my younger self would be, if only I'd made a better decision, better choices. If only I had been more, if only I'd felt more worthy of myself, you know, um, because I think I wasn't worthy. I didn't feel worthy. I felt... I felt I needed to belong instead of belonging to myself first. I wanted other people to accept me instead of me accepting myself. I think for me, that's the, that's the, 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 the advice I would like to give my younger self is that you should have just believed in yourself, been more worthy of you instead of worrying about what other people think. And I think that's what most young people do these days. They're more worried about other people, you know, uh, and that's the advice I would give to myself. And another thing I would say to myself is my younger self is that stop, Stop trying to impress people that don't care about you. You know, we go out there, we buy such a lot of stuff because we want to impress people that don't even care about us. So for me, I like that. That's the kind of thing I say. Stop doing things for other people. Start doing things for yourself. That's what I want to say. And if only there was someone like you that could have intervened in your life when you were a kid. Exactly. But Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Um, this has been an absolute, yeah, it's an absolute treat to have you on here. Um, and it was, like I said earlier, something I was, I've was i been looking forward to for a long time. So, um, yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Thank and you, um, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Wide Awake podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it and you're still wide awake as always. Um, yeah, see you guys next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>